This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year, 1978. And even Russians didn't play this much roulette. The movie, Deer Hunter. Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. Amy Nicholson and I are both on vacation this week, which is why it sounds like I am recording this on a phone because I am. I am actually in a closet in North Carolina. Amy is in a film festival in Korea, but we did not want to stop the podcast from getting into your ear holes on this 4th of July week. We're going to be talking about The Deer Hunter, a movie in which Amy and I had um, some interesting thoughts about. But before we get into that, I want to talk about Do the Right Thing. A lot of you brought up that um, you were disappointed in both Amy and I, and we take that very personally, that we didn't bring up that Radio Raheem's love and hate speech was actually a reference to the Robert Mitchum film, Night of the Hunter. I've never seen that. I want to see that. I'm sorry I didn't recognize that. Amy, I'm sure, has seen it. But, you know, we got into such an intense conversation that it may have just eluded her. We'll get into it a little bit more when uh, she is back in town. But let's talk about what Kenman 8943 brought up. Um, Kenman says, as you predicted, Futurama did reference Do the Right Thing. During the Mother's Day episode, there's a robot uprising and riot, and a trash can robot throws himself through Sal's pizzeria window. There we go. Win one for Futurama. If we don't get it in The Simpsons, Futurama is there to save the day. Also, Sal Mascali writes, my biggest criticism of Do the Right Thing is that Danny Aiello doesn't know how to make a pizza. I know a lot of people brought that up, that Danny didn't look like he was actually making a good pizza, but Danny did train. He said he learned how to make a pizza. Also, just a shout out to Kate Littleton, who's running our Facebook group. She is doing an unspooled scavenger hunt. Go to our Facebook page right now to check that out and find out what that all entails. I'm not even quite sure just yet uh, because, again, I am on vacation, but it sounds awesome. Um, Griffin Newman, who hosts an amazing podcast. Uh, If you're not listening to Griffin's 
podcast, Blank Check, you, you're missing out. He was also a guest on this show for the Academy Awards episode. Um, wanted us to know that You Got a Friend of Me is a go-to for him at karaoke. So he wanted us to know that those types of people do exist. And you know what? I have to say, after Amy ripped apart Randy Newman, I have been listening to a lot of Randy Newman. And I need to point out that we now have Randy Newman's Faust t-shirts available in our T Public store. That's right. You can go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. I love our shirts there. If you have not checked it out, go check it out. Um, they are pretty awesome. And a big shout out to Kim Rulo and the Pittsburgh Unspooled group out there, the big meetup that they had this week to go see Do the Right Thing. So thank you, Kim. Thank you, Pittsburgh. We love you. And last week, um, I thought that it would be fun to ask everybody here who listens to the show to tell us what they think Deer Hunter is about, because it's a movie that I've heard a reference, but I've never actually seen. So I wanted to know what you all thought Deer Hunter was about. All right, let's go to the calls. The Deer Hunter is a reimagining of Bambi from man's perspective. Hi, yes, I believe the Deer Hunter is about Bambi taking revenge on the hunter who killed his mother. Deer Hunter is a sequel to Bambi told from the perspective of the man that killed Bambi's mom. It's a musical retelling of Bambi in the style of Wicked, and uh, I can't wait to see how the Russian roulette scene fits in. Mm, yes, the Deer Hunter, uh, Michael Shimino reimagination of Bambi from the hunter's point of view. I like that you think the main character in this movie is a deer. Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken, they're not deer. Okay. Anyway, um, let's get into it. Let's find out what Deer Hunter is actually about and if it's actually as good as people say. I mean, does it deserve to be on this list? We will get into it onto our feature presentation, The Deer Hunter. It's 1979 and trendy kids are walking around town while listening to tapes on their Sony Walkman and wearing Lacoste alligator polos while sipping on the cool new soda, Mellow Yellow. Michael Jackson releases his off-the-wall album marking the debut of his solo career. Nickelodeon and ESPN launch their networks. Margaret Thatcher is the first woman elected as British Prime Minister. China institutes a one-child-per-family rule and Iraq's president resigns and his VP, Saddam Hussein, replaces him. The YMCA sues the village people Sid Vicious overdoses and Pink Floyd releases The Wall. People are bopping to the Bee Gees, Gloria Gaynor, and the Eagles, and they're watching Happy Days, MASH, and Little House on the Prairie on TV. Audiences are loving Alien, Superman, Kramer vs. Kramer, and the Muppet movie, and of course, today's film, Deer Hunter, which was rated number 53 on AFI's 2007 list, up a whopping 26 places from the 1997 list. You hear it in my voice, already shocked. Amy, uh, who's in it? What's it about? The Deer Hunter. It is written and directed by Michael Cimino, an assist from Derek Washburn on that script. It is about a community of young men who live in a town called Clareton, Pennsylvania. It's a steel town. Uh, Act one, one of them, Stephen gets married. Act two, three of them, Stephen played by John Savage. Michael, played by Robert De Niro, and Nick, played by Christopher Walken, are in Vietnam, and they learn about Russian roulette. Act three, Mike and Steve come back, try to make the best of life back in Pennsylvania while wondering how can they ever get Nick back. That's Christopher Walken, if he's still alive. So, Amy, I've never seen The Deer Hunter. 
I've heard about the deer hunter. The deer hunter seems to be said in the same breath as The Godfather. It's one of these quintessential 70s films. And I have to say, I don't like this movie. Whoa, that is definitive. Yes, I will talk about it. I think there are some things I really like about this movie, but I can't lie to you and even (laughs) engage you on the sense that I like it. There are things that I like about it, and I'm happy to talk about it. I would love you to sway me on it, but I had a real negative reaction to this movie. I'm like, what is all the hubbub bub about, bub? (laughs) This might be a, a very special episode, the one episode where I like a super masculine Vietnam film slightly better than you. Really? Wow. Who would have thought? Wow. I I mean, so out of all the Vietnam films, this one you like the most. This one has some of the best highs and some of the worst lows. When this movie is bad, it is bad. Uh, When this movie is really wonderful and confident, like in the first third of the movie with the wedding scene in the small rural town, I think this movie is beautiful. I love the way this movie introduces us to all of the characters, lets us learn about them through this gigantic set piece where we're just watching people dance and drink and look at each other and get into fights and who's making eye contact with who. I should also say I'm a little bit biased because I, you know, I mentioned before I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. Right. But like Greek and Russian churches kind of like trade places in small towns. So my parents got married in a Russian Orthodox Church and the pictures look a lot like this. <laughs> uh, so there's a little bit of me that's like, oh, I know, th- I know this world a little. And... It's lovely for me to see it on screen. You know, I think there is something really engaging about this film in many ways. Like, it's beautiful to look at. The deer hunting scenes are really exquisite. And you're right, that hour-long wedding sequence is really dense, and you don't see this in cinema, and you get to exist with these characters. It felt to me that this whole movie can be accomplished in less than two hours, uh, what we're telling and how we're telling it. Um, because, you sound like a producer on The Deer Hunter because they all wanted it to be more like that. Well, I, there were two cuts of the film, right? And I guess there is a, a, a rumor or a legend that Michael Cimino, the director, bribed the projectionist to stop the film midway through so he could like skew the test scores so the longer version tested better than the shorter version. <laughs> the I heard is that Michael Cimino wanted the film to be exactly three hours and three minutes long, which it is, because he wanted it to be as long as Gone with the Wind, specifically. And that's what this whole film feels like. It feels like I'm just doing it because we because I can. I'm I'm making them dance until they literally fall down. That wedding scene, they play it in the end credits. Like, you know, you know, De Niro falls down exhausted because they've been dancing for eight hours. We talked about Rosie Perez, you know, in that opening dance scene and do the right thing. Here is another director just going like, dance, do this, do that. It just feels like like masturbatory. That's how I felt about this whole film. I'm like, okay, I, I get it. I get what you're trying to do. But like the guys singing to each other, which is a thing. I'm a man. I've been around a bunch of men. We never like break into song. You don't? Like, you, never, you never get out of good... I love you, baby. <laughs> but like, I mean, I, and I still, you know, I get those, you know, those little tingles. My spider sense goes off when I even see it in movies like Beautiful Girls. It's just like, it's like you're trying to create this family. You're trying to do all this stuff. And I just, I don't necessarily fully buy it. Like, they're just like slapping ass so much at the start of this movie. I'm like, oh, what are, you, what are we doing here? What are we doing? I don't know. It just, it just rubbed me the wrong That's way. That's interesting. Maybe I don't have as much of a male friendship bullshit detector. 
Like maybe you can see things in here that yeah. seem really phony the way that I look at you that show euphoria that came out and I'm like, no, this is right. not how female high school culture works. Maybe I'm a little bit blind to like male dynamics of friendship in here because it, I'm also just so in love with Christopher Walken in this movie that I really can't fathom. I really can't. I really, my a part of my brain does shut off and it just stares at him. I mean, this is a movie that builds up this beautiful, perfect, wonderful man to torture him. It's like, it's like... Oh, it's like creating a work of art just to burn it. But I, when he's on screen, I'm just like over there staring at maybe the most perfect human being on the planet. Besides and I, Michael Shannon. And I do not disagree with you by you have a type. I do not disagree <laughs> with you at all. I think this is one of the best Christopher Walken performances I've ever seen. And he has a career of great, insane, engaging performances in this you know, obviously is very early in his career. This is kind of what makes him break out. He wins the Oscar for this. I think I like the bones of this movie. I just don't like all the fat around it because I think it actually dilutes the power of it. It, it, it. That's so fun. This is how I feel about Apocalypse Now, but not so much here. Wow, okay. Huh. I wonder where that's coming from. I feel the wankery in Apocalypse Now. Right. But here, even though I know that Chimino is called a wanker by most people who worked with him. I think he did have British producers, so I feel like somebody must have called him a wanker. Sure. I, I think I'm so absorbed in getting to see such a specific community, a specific one. It's not like mm-hmm. we're all American, you know, like mm-hmm. corn fed, fed baseball types. I think I just so appreciate that we're here, even though the here that they, he created is really fake. It's like bits of Ohio mixed with Washington State. Well, There's I no mean, glaciers in Pennsylvania, but. Again, it feels like what you were saying about. Coppola, like here's a guy who didn't go to war, who's fantasizing what it's like to go to war. We'll get into later on how this movie really puts a a spin on Vietnam that is just not true. But I don't think that's the point of the film anyway. But I would really argue that De Niro, who did, you know, uh, go to a steel mill to research his character as a a guy named Bob, you know, he feels real and grounded. But the movie, it reeks of... This is what I think people in a small steel town are like. Yeah, right. Yeah. We've got to get more in touch with the steel town. Oh, yeah. They're talking about their bullet. Oh, they're talking about their beer. They love Rolling Rock beer. That's what they like because they're from Pennsylvania. They drink Pennsylvania beer. Like, you know, it's like that kind of shit that I'm like, it just like, it just like, I'm like, it just feels like Hollywood coming there and doing it. And again, I wouldn't even point to a performance I don't like. I, I don't think I, I can say that. I just don't like the whole, the whole world. <laughs> Of it. Like I, I mean, that's fair. Like, I heard that um, Chimino, like, he grew up a rich kid in New York. You know, nothing again. Some of my yeah. best friends, I'm sure, grew up as rich kids in New York. Sure. But that what he would do is, like, he would hang out with, like, the poor delinquents, like, the crazy people who would walk around New York with guns when he was in high school because he thought rich people were so boring. Oh, wow. So there is a, an element in him of, like, wanting to suck up adventure and suck up danger, which... You know, kind of like you pointed to Apocalypse Now. Remember how we talked a lot in that episode about John Milius just basically making up what war was like? That's basically Chimito. He was like, I, I was when I was going through and reading all the research on um, the Deer Hunter. You know, I was at the library. I was going through the me- microfiche because I'm a microfiche. Yeah, I love that. I was going through the microfiche, and the first thing I found about him was like this piece from the New York Times. It was like, oh man, yeah, he signed up as a medic. He was with the Green Beret. He did all of this stuff. He was like, you know, there like around the time of the Tet Offensive. And I was like, whoa, wow. Okay, so Chimino's got some legitimacy. And then as I kept reading yep. through the microfiche, I got to the ones where they were like, no, that is absolute bullshit. That did not happen. We fact-checked this. No. 
Well, basically, he just didn't say no. People assume things, and then he alluded to things, right? Like, um, oh man, yeah, I've seen some stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy the fact that his career even continued after this. And I know it didn't continue in great success, but like right now, Heaven's Gate. If y'all wanted to hear the word, yes, yes. I mean, there you go. I mean, but like he didn't do anything to refute these claims, and his co-writer on the film said he's a pathological liar. But to his credit, his co-writer did say, but if he wasn't such a liar, this movie would never have been made. I mean, so here's a guy, the truth of Michael Cimino is um, he enlisted in the army in 1968 at the height of the Vietnam War and was part of the Green Beret Medical Unit, but never was deployed. Um, Wait, I think that's actually the lie. I think he's actually enlisted in 1962. Oh, you're right. Much earlier. Oh, sorry, you're right. He's so also, you're right. He's also a guy who lied a lot about his age. Like, he was born in 39, but he would say he was born as late as... 52 later on in his life. That's crazy. So I'm even having trouble making sense of the lies. So here he is. He only served for six months and he was never in the special forces. By the way, while they're at this wedding, um, there's this moment where they talk to a Green Beret or they basically kind of yell things at him, expect things at him. Right. I have to admit, listening to this scene, let's listen to this scene for a second. There's only one thing in my mind. Do you know what is on my mind? Oh, well, I was thinking that maybe this is like a spinoff of Richard Crenna's character from uh, the Rambo movies, and he was coming to take De Niro with him to Vietnam to finish some unfinished business. Uh, <laughs> no, what was on your mind? Uh, it was a little video game I love very much. <laughs> That's hilarious. I had to look it up. I mean, I do want to say, I do want to say, I actually looked, I was like, what is that song? And it's a song called um, The Korobaniki. Okay. And what The Korobaniki is, is it's a folk song. And the folk song is also, I think, kind of symbolic about everything, as is everything in this movie. It's about a peddler who convinces a girl to hook up with him by, like, giving her a ring. Oh, wow. And then he's like, I'm going to come back. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to go sell some stuff. But as he goes and sells some stuff and makes money, he gets murdered and never comes home. Well, you know the whole thing? If you got past, like, 120 levels on Tetris, uh, you would die. What? Yeah, it would just automatically kill you. It was original Russian roulette. <laughs> um, but this whole, yeah, this whole sequence is really interesting. And again, just going back to the uh, Green Beret who comes in, why is he there? What? What? Who? Who goes and crashes a wedding? Like he's like that was the only bar he could find open. The bar in in the Legion Hall. Uh, that guy's got some problems. Uh, but and that guy is basically what who Mike is because when he gets back, he never takes off that outfit. He's right. always wearing his his fatigues. He's always doing it. I actually love that scene when he's back when um, Axel gets stuck in the bowling machine. Oh, my God. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, no, what do we do? And Meryl Streep is wearing what Christopher Walken's bowling shirt. And the camera just follows him. It, like, pans along as Mike, like, runs to the rescue down the bowling. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a fireman scene. Let's just go back a little bit and talk about this film and the origin of it, because it didn't come from his personal experience. It came from an unproduced screenplay uh, written by Garfinkel and Redeker about uh, Las Vegas and Russian roulette. And it was called The Man Who Came to Play. Uh, and the script was purchased by Michael Dealey, who hired uh, Michael Cimino to do rewrites with Derek Washburn. They took uh, the Russian roulette element and they placed it in the Vietnam War. So it was Russian roulette first. It was Russian roulette first, which makes sense because this movie is... Like heavy. a Jason Statham movie. I mean, it's heavy Russian roulette. I mean, 
Vietnam is a part of it, but Russian roulette, I think, is the real through line of this movie. I mean, to a point where I was laughing at it at the end. I was like, what are we doing? What oh are we my God. doing? It didn't even occur to me, though, right now. Is this a Russian community because it's Russian roulette? Since he, like, backdated all of the plot? Amy... I guarantee you that's the level of research oh that went God. into is this. Is this why there are the people being like, oh, let's do let's do shots, is so he could get away with them playing Russian roulette? <laughs> I feel obligated to mention now very clearly that my parents, despite being married in a Russian Orthodox church, did never play Russian roulette. I just want that on the record. Look, I mean, you know what, Amy, they may have, but they may never have told you. They may have just been the lucky survivors <laughs> of the Russian world. They carried this dark secret inside of them. Well, look, you, you said, like, did he maybe place it there because of, you know, the Russian culture? And I would say that it wouldn't be surprising because Derek Washburn said that him and Chimino just got together in a hotel room and broke this whole story over three days. They didn't interview a single veteran. And all they did was watch TV and they said, oh, you know, those combat cameramen in Vietnam, they were out there in the field. And we, we got what we, ne- we needed from watching that. Well, it, it, this is why I think it's really important to talk about these type of histories here and an apocalypse now. Because I think it is really, really important to say that a bunch of people get their history from movies. Right. And I think a lot of people get their ideas of Vietnam from Apocalypse Now and from The Deer Hunter, written by two bullshitters. Right. And so it is, I think it is always worth sort of raising a flag and being like, what we picture war being like is made up by people who wanted to dream up the most fucked up stuff. That's why but I like, like uh, Oliver Stone with Platoon. And when you when you get into it, you're like, oh, this feels like the most real portrayal of that war because he was there. He exactly. was actually there. No, I mean, to that point, like this movie, The Deer Hunter, comes out three years after we left Vietnam. You know, it, so the, this is... Not even history to people, basically. It's like living the story of what just happened. And do you think that people go into it going like, this is what it must have been like? I think the people who saw The Deer Hunter when it came out were like, this is sort of great manipulative bullshit, honestly. I you think, like, really think the people saw through it? I think so. I think so. I think a lot of people, like, there were tons of articles in newspapers about how this was a fake, how this was a phony, how, you know... Michael Cimino didn't really have the right to tell this story. And then, of course, going very hard on Russian roulette, which we'll be getting to later, I'm sure. But why? Well, then why was it like received with open arms? Well, it was received with a lot of mixed reviews, to be honest. Okay. Like, I didn't have a hard time finding a negative review of this one. I, I mean, there were a lot of rave reviews, a lot of glowing reviews. There were a lot of defenses. This was basically a hot take movie okay. of this era. When this movie was showed at the Berlin Film Festival, there were huge walkouts, you know, the Soviet delegation left because they were mad about the treatment of the Vietnamese. So then a lot of like the communist bloc leaves, you know, these Germans, the Cubans, Bulgarians, everybody leaves. But there's this infighting. You know you know how like we fight so much about like the Oscars and people trying to take down each other's films and yeah. sniping them? This conversation was happening this year about this film, you know, because one of the producers of The Deer Hunter was like, actually, that walkout was started by Julie Christie. Because actually, Julie Christie was in this movie directed by Warren Beatty called Heaven Can Wait that everybody also thought was going to win the Oscars. Like, so she was trying to start this bad faith thing. I don't really know if that's true either. So you think that like this created like a snowball effect and then that kind of reached out to Vietnam veterans because they also are protesting the film as well. Yeah. I mean, when this movie shows up at the Academy Awards, there's people outside with signs. I think like 13 people get arrested protesting this film at the Oscars. Yeah, they're throwing stones at the cars and they're holding up signs that say no Oscars for racism. The deer hunter is a bloody lie. And there is 
a like a violent scuffle between the police and these protesters. That that's how angry people are. So much so that Robert De Niro didn't even want to sit in his seat at the Academy Awards. He wanted to sit backstage because he thought it was too crazy. And the Academy said no. And so he said, all right, I'll set this one out. And he just stayed at home in New York. It's interesting to me because it is spoken about in a very, like, this is American cinema at its best. You know, Roger Ebert, who I often agree with, you know, writes a very passionate review of this film. You know, he loved this film. And it's some great performances, some great camera work. I love the way Chimino, like, uses the camera that you're kind of, you know, you're seeing these like long, wide shots and you're, you're, you know, you're behind cars. You feel like you really are being voyeuristic. I think with the wedding, that wedding sequence is amazing. It just doesn't feel worthy of film. Like it feels to me like cut that down to 20 minutes, not an hour. And then you have a film. I also am confused by some of the characters. Do you understand what was going on with um, Meryl Streep, who is completely wasted in this movie and only really in this movie because she was dating John Cazal. Who plays Stan, one of the guys who stayed home. Who? Also excellent yeah. in the film. Yeah. But at this I mean John Cazal was John Cazal's this guy who came from theater. He made I think it's like he made five films in six years and all of them won Oscars. Wow. Like he just entered, blew up Hollywood. Yeah. And then died of lung cancer when he was forty two. And, and he's sick here in this film already. And the only reason why Meryl Streep took the part was because they were, you know, they were together as a couple and she wanted to be near him. So she does this oddly basic part. I mean, she's always amazing to watch and I love her in this movie as well. But it's surprising. Like when I saw her in the film, I was like, ooh, we're going to get to see some good Meryl Streep stuff. But it's a very serviceable role. I mean, to, you know, she's doing everything she can, but it's not that much on the page there, I don't think. Well, what I think is really impressive, I mean, she's brand new to Hollywood at this time. Yeah. You know, this whole movie's basically starred with New York theater people. Like, everybody in this movie is a New York theater person. Right. And so it's one of her first roles, and she gives these interviews even at the time. Like, even at the time, which I think is kind of a big deal, where she says, I wouldn't exactly call this a strong woman's part. The fact is, is that this is a man's story, and my character is called upon to be there. Strong and supportive for the man, and that concept is not anywhere close to my personal values. That she hated being a sad housewife. And actually, if people are really interested in this a lot, I really want to recommend, you know, Karina Longworth, past yeah. guest, best person ever. like Love her. Host of You Must Remember This. She wrote a book on Meryl Streep, and her first chapter is all about the deer hunter. And she has this line that I really love. She calls Meryl's performance in this, quote, an act of subversion that passed as submission. That she played this role wow. who was really passive, but she put so much humanity and life into it that you understand that this character is so much more than even the movie gets her, that she kind of steals all these scenes, which I think actually, you know, in a way, Chimino, to give him credit, he watches her. He puts the camera on her face. He mm -hmm. lets her have these moments. She just is engaging to watch. And again, like I said, the part is a little bit underwritten, but she pops so much. And back to this question I wanted to ask you, what is your understanding of who she is? Is she, and I was really confused about this in the film, so is she married to that guy who punches her in the face and then also dating Christopher Walken? No, I think that's her dad. Oh, man, I was so confused because I know that she was in a relationship, but I thought like, okay, that makes sense. But, that, <laughs> but by the way, her dad doesn't look that much older than the guys. At least the guy who owns the bar. Don't know how I missed that. And I also have another question that I'll get to no, when I we mean, get to. No, I there are like a lot of kind of shady, mysterious things happening under the surface that the movie doesn't quite tell you, which I respect. But this whole plot of 
know, this wedding that we have between Angela, who we're going to have on the show in a bit, Ruchiana Alda, she's yes. our special guest today. Angela being married to Stephen John Savage. She's pregnant. We know this very casually from like a tiny scene we get of her, a glimpse of her in her wedding dress in the mirror touching her belly. His mom even knows that she's pregnant. His mom, who is very protective, very Russian, basically barreling into scenes, says, you know, she's not such a thin girl, if you know what I mean. But then you have Stephen saying he's never slept with her. So the whole yeah. movie is this quiet thing of like, who is the dad for real? You know, like, is it John Cazal, who seems to be like around her a lot by her side a bit? The baby's also super blonde. So is it like Christopher Watkins? Is it anybody else's? I know there there are these like moments. And that's where I think I really enjoy the film in those quieter moments. And I think, you know, those that kind of the tension underneath this town. Like I love when, you know, I'm jumping ahead, but when De Niro comes back and doesn't go to his own party and you're seeing everybody getting ready for the party. And, you know, there are these just these little quiet things. I, I mean... I do love that monologue, the this is this monologue. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. No? What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. Some fucking friend. You're some fucking friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your goddamn head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Every time he comes up, he's got no knife, he's got no jacket, he's got no pants, he's got no boots. Always got that stupid gun he carries around like John Wayne. That ain't gonna help you. Oh, what the hell, Mike? Give him the boots. No way, I ain't giving him no boots. No more, no more. That's it. You're a fucking bastard, you know that? Huh? Stanley, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. Like, that to me is just, I feel like I get more of the friendship there. It feels like a real moment. I don't know. I there. I think that the, you know, the underbelly of this, you know, like, I think you're supposed to understand, like, oh, these are carefree guys, and they go to war, and they come back, and they're broken. But I think they, I would argue, they're broken before they go to war. Well, and I, I would argue, like, that scene is trying to set up this idea that, that Robert De Niro's Michael He's set up to survive because he's just the hard ass. He's just on it. He's with it. He's sharp. He's focused. He's kind of the protector. And he's also kind of the punishing dad in that scene. And there's also a second thing that happens in that scene that I think is really interesting, which is one of the characters. It's I forget if it's Axel or the other one. It's a Twinkie dipped in mustard. And oh, I, love that. I just brought you something. Oh, my gosh. Is it a Twinkie dipped in mustard? Okay, it's not a Twinkie. I couldn't find one. But it's a donut. With mustard? Right. Are you going to eat it? Will you I eat will. It? Will I will definitely eat it? eat it. Are you going to eat it now? I'll do it right now. Here we go. Okay, I'm All ready. Right. I'm excited. This is not the same thing. Not bad. Not bad? No, actually, the it's actually not bad at all. I do another. Yeah. Can I try? Yeah, please. Yeah, it kind of the sugar and the and the tartness it works together for me. I would. That's okay. Yeah, it's not bad. It's okay. By the way, I love that this that we've come into. <laughs> Trying food <laughs> that our characters have, uh, that our characters were talking about has done on the show because they also have another food based thing I want to talk about later on. I'll just say it now. I got obsessed with one scene when they go to the kitchen in this movie, and they're having this like you know this big moment in the kitchen, and the kitchen had the most fake food on the counter. It was like they clear like it doesn't read like a kitchen. It's like we'll just put a stalk of celery down and three eggs and a loaf of bread. It's like this is a bar kitchen. Like when when are you using these three <laughs> ingredients? Like it's the dumbest thing. But um, 
just to go back to this idea of setting up Michael being the hard ass, you know, the guy who's going to survive, you're setting up against John Cazal, who doesn't go to Vietnam. So it's a weird dynamic. Like, and when I'm watching this movie, it feels like I don't know if they wrote him out because of his sickness, but we're setting up something with these two characters and with him very much in the top of this film that I don't think pays off at all. You know, that's interesting because I feel like one of the things of this movie is that literally every line in it, every moment of it feels very like heavy handed. Like Mm -hmm. this means this, this means this. I mean, from the very first speech that we even hear Robert De Niro say when they all exit the steel plant in the morning. What the hell is that? Where? Oh yeah. Holy shit, you know what that is? Those are sun dogs. What does it mean? It means a blessing on the hunter sent by the great wolf to his children. What the fuck are you talking about? No, it's an old Indian thing. You're full of shit. Stanley, would I shit you about something like that? Yeah, there's just, they're blessing the hunters, a blessing that doesn't seem to take. Because if there is anything this movie says, it's that being a good hunter doesn't save you at all in Vietnam. I mean, especially if this is your philosophy to well, be... Well, doesn't it, though? No. He's, I mean, he's, he's the only one who really gets out unscarred. He's the only good hunter. Yeah, but the way he acts in Vietnam is actually him betraying the way that he feels like he should be acting. Because before he goes to Vietnam, he gives this whole speech about what it means to kill. One shot. Is pussy. I don't think about one shot that much anymore, Mike. You have to think about one shot. One shot is what it's all about. Deer has to be taken with one shot. I try to tell people that. They don't listen. But to get out, what we see him do is like Rambo-style machine gunning. Like his philosophy of one shot does not save him. Well, okay. I disagree with you wholeheartedly here. Okay. Because, I mean, he's taking the one shot metaphorically, that he has to survive, which is, I'm going to put three bullets in this gun, and we're going to fucking shoot our way out of here. They have one chance to live a life. Not like, I think it's a metaphor for what he's doing, and he has three bullets to take out an entire reserve. It's not like he comes in guns blazing. It's like that mentality of the one shot, not the easy way out, doing things you know, with more difficulty, with more precision, is exactly the only reason why he is alive. I mean, you know, even when Stephen breaks his leg after that fall, carries him on his back. I like your interpretation because, like, to me, I was thinking of it more as, like, a bullfighter code. Like, have you ever been to a bullfight? I have not. I've been once. I don't totally recommend it, but it is very different when you're there. You realize, like, oh, okay, my ideas of what this is are totally wrong. I don't need to ever do this again. But they do have this uh, code of, like, the one stab, mm-hmm. where at the very end, after you've gone through all the rituals, you know, and this is also very, itself a movie about rituals, after you go through all these rituals with the bull, the thing you're supposed to do very last is you take your long sword, you're supposed to go up to the bull, you're supposed to stab it once right between the back of the shoulder blades, and it's supposed to die immediately. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, the crowd starts to actually turn on the bullfighter, which I think is really interesting. So I guess that's what I was thinking he was talking about here, is this idea of, like, a graceful kill, which does not work when you're in a war as messy as Vietnam. Right. And I think he's glorifying killing on some level, right? Like he can't kill the deer at the end of the film. I think he doesn't want to take anybody else's life. You know, I think before when there were no stakes, it was easy to put these rules on it. But I also believe that he is the only guy ready and prepared to survive like he is in his right gear he does have his right gun he does have the bullets you know he's not like john cazal which i think would have been so much more interesting if if that relationship there was with 
uh, Stephen instead of him. But uh, that's true. That would be a, that would be the right fix. Yeah, it'd be Stephen instead of him because like Stephen, it's like. You're not prepared. Like, even here in the movie when he, like, gives this whole lecture about, like, you know what? Forget Steven. Right. So I'm Doss now. To me you. What about Steven? Forget him. Forget him. Forget him. You gotta make it. Who do you think you are, God? Look at him. He's in the days. You coming to listen to me. Mike, what are you saying? I'm saying forget him, Nick. Get it through your head or you and me are both down to I mean, I think in a way he does think of himself as God. Absolutely. I, I mean, he is, he's God with that deer that he decides not to shoot. He is a flawless soldier. He is never phased. And which brings me to my question I wanted to ask you. Is Robert De Niro in this movie uh, a Vietnam version of Atticus Finch? Is he too perfect? Whoa. As much as I enjoy Robert De Niro's performance in this, and I think he pulls off a goatee better than basically anybody besides... Do you? Uh, oh, I think it looks so awful. Oh, really? You it's don't like not... that angel heart look? No. I mean, and I'm sort of down with the ginger beard, but not here. <laughs> I do like it. But yeah, I mean, there is something in this character that, you know, it's like the complete 180 from Taxi Driver, from mm-hmm. his character there, who's like all nerves and bubbling and simmering. I think what's interesting about Michael is... Almost the worse things get, the calmer he gets. You know, mm-hmm. he's just sort of there and he's focused, which I do believe happens. I, I I do believe that, like, you know, when something awful happens, there are a bunch of people who, like, something in us clicks over and we're, like, very calm. Like, I will tend to freak out about the littlest thing, but right. if something big happens, I'm always like, here we go. And is he basically calming down Stephen in that moment where they're both looking outside of the – they're in this, like, cage underneath this hut – and, you know, he's whispering, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just think about something. Like, he's walking him through, relaxing. Is, is Stephen reacting just to the Russian roulette upstairs in such an extreme way? I, I couldn't quite tell why he was. I mean, I guess he's just having a nervous breakdown, knowing that he's going to be next. Yeah. Every click of a gun means Because they are, like, of- psychologically torturing them. I mean, like, there's that scene where the guy just sort of, blast a machine gun into the water pit just because just because just to keep them on edge you know right. where they start yelling like come on i mean but i do think michael does have some flaws which primarily among them being like he's convinced he's always right you know right. later on when he sees stevie at the hospital he's like you're leaving here and stevie's like i really like it and he's like you're leaving here yeah but i mean he should take him out of the hospital stevie doesn't want to be in that ho- i mean stevie the hospital. I mean, maybe we're supposed to be like layering one flew over the cuckoo's nest on the hospital, but he just got to meet Princess Grace. Looks great. Oh, I thought that was a lie. You think? Yes, I think he's trying to lie to him and say like, hey, everything's going great. Like, he lost both of his legs and he's trying to put on this brave face. I love that scene because it's like this moment of these two guys who've been through hell and he looks so downtrodden and depressed. And the minute he hears his voice, he he perks up and you see this like life come to Stephen's face and you know that Stephen has to be like, in my opinion, my life is great. You saved me. Like it wasn't, a, you didn't, you didn't fuck me up. But this is a guy who left his wife. You know, his wife is alone. She's essentially catatonic, you know, um, and all stemming from that one little thing, you know, uh, in the beginning, you knew this probably, I did not know this, but in a Russian Orthodox wedding ceremony, you drink out of this goblet. Those two sides of a goblet, you're both drinking and of a drop uh, spills on you, that's bad luck. By the way, I would lose that in a second. That seems impossibly hard. Everyone's good. But, yeah, uh, and by the way, that also seems like 
incredibly heavy-handed. Oh, yes. I mean, 100%. So she gets two little drops. No one even sees it, but she gets two little drops. I love that no one even sees it, that everybody just starts applauding like they did it. Yes. So you have this moment where he's, like, coming to life, and I think I felt like he was lying. I don't think Princess Grace is coming to that hospital. It looks like a really dumpy hospital. She's a princess. You got to do a lot of stuff. Okay, well, maybe you do. I I will take it. Also, wait. I think, actually, Princess Grace is from... New York or Pennsylvania? Okay. All right. Now, now I'm going to be like a Princess Grace, Grace Truther. She's from like a rich family somewhere over there. All right. Well, I will I will take him at face value. But he wasn't in that hospital because he needed to be. He was there because he was hiding out. He couldn't go back to his life. So in a weird way, you know, De Niro is right again. I need to take you out of here. You don't belong in here. You don't need to be in here. You are you are hiding from your life. And, but and, De Niro's also projecting because here's the thing that he does throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. He's like, you, stop hiding. Come home. You know, he does that here to Steve. He tries to do it with Nick. That doesn't go very well. But he does the same thing. He doesn't confess it to people, but he skips his own party. He knows himself firsthand mm-hmm. that you don't want to go and face your community, that people don't want to, like, look people in the eye and try to explain something they can't even explain. He knows that. But instead of like talking about it or dealing with it, he just projects it onto other people. And he's like, I gotcha. I'm still the same man. We're fine. It's interesting. I think this movie is so muddled in what it's trying to say because I also will look and say I love the fact that, you know, he has this like kind of father-son relationship with Walken. Or at least, I mean, I know they're about the same age, but it seems like Walken looks up to him and, you know, he really guides Walken through this moment where with the Russian roulette moment and he can't save Christopher Walken at the end. He can't save him. Like Christopher Walken has descended into essentially madness. And yeah, let's the, hear a little bit of that mad voice, yeah. can we? I just, cause I just love A, that you still hear the Walken in the Walken. Yeah. And yet it's Beginning also, of Walken, yeah, baby Walken. Baby Walken. You know it's me? It's Mike. Tell me it's Mike. Tell me it's Mike. It's Mike. Tell me it's Mike. It's Mike. Mike. Mike who? Mike who? Hey. Mike who? Mike who? I don't know. Yeah, there's this glazed look yeah. in his eye, and he's gotten so much thinner. He and- only ate uh, water, rice, and bananas, so he can look that kind of hollow Ooh. and vacant. I mean, but by the way, that's a very Christian Bailey type of thing to do, you know? It's yeah. like, but he does look like a skeleton of himself, you know? Oh, the beautiful walk-in who's like on the dance floor at the beginning of mm-hmm. the church. Uh, to see him like emaciated like this with, with the dark veins that I guess imply he's been doing heroin or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, again, some stuff left unsaid. I mean, in that whole moment when Walken spits in De Niro's face, like that's such a – I mean, again, you talk about heavy-handed. Like, you spit in my face. You know, that's what people say. He actually does spit in his face. And that was an improvised uh, moment, which is why if you watch De Niro, he does seem genuinely shocked at that. You know, I think uh, that basically – the rumor has it that De Niro almost walked off set. But this is the way that I think Chimino ran this set. Like, we're, we're dudes. We're making movies about men. And this is what you fucking get in there. You know, like, he wanted all his slaps to be real. And the, that's those slaps. I mean, as much as I'm, like, having fun with this movie, I can, I mean, I can literally say that that Russian roulette scene is masterfully done. And, and, and both of them, the, you know, uh, even the one where Walken walks in to find the Russian roulette, like, everything. And you I mean, even the one where, where... After Robert De Niro comes home and he puts the gun to Gazali's uh, yeah. head, where I heard there was actually even a real bullet in that gun, that De Niro's like, it'll be more real if we have a real bullet and in here. This and this is the bullshit like, that I hate. Come on. And there was a real gun, but Gazali kept like triple checking it to be like, right. can we please, like, if we have to do this, make sure it's not near, near me? But this is, but here's a guy also 
who was dying of lung cancer. You know, he dies before this movie even comes out. So then you're talking about this other thing going on behind the scenes where it's like, I'm going to put a real bullet in here. And he's like, I'm freaked out. You're going to really shoot me? Like, what the fuck is going on here? But it just seems like (laughs) machismo, machismo, machismo in every sense of the word. I mean, putting a live round in a gun and shoving it in his face like that. It does, I mean, every time a gun goes to a face, you know, you feel it. And I think I love that uh, that John Savage's character, you know, can't even put it really to his temple and just kind of shoots off a little part of his head. Yeah, and what's so interesting about that moment where, where Stevie can't really shoot himself in the head is, like, there's this mixture of emotions that I think the film is setting you up to feel. Like, I'm glad he's alive. Also, he's a pussy. Like, I think you right. actually are supposed to feel both in that moment. Yeah, because it's like you, like, De Niro would have had more respect from if he blew his own head off. <laughs> I do think so. I think because like you watch him, like you watch him, like coach him through it. It's okay. You're a man. You're a man. Show him what you're made of. Show him you got balls. You know, it's like it's it's a crazy thing. Let's can we break into the Russian roulette of it all too? Okay, so this movie, fire away. I mean, this movie is uh, <laughs> click. Okay, so this movie is um, obviously centered around these scenes of Russian roulette and. There was no Russian roulette. There was no Russian roulette in the Vietnam War. That was not a thing that was happening, right? If anything, you could argue that this movie created more instances of people doing Russian roulette than the Vietnam War had of people doing Russian roulette. Yeah, that was a really interesting thing, going back and like reading all the original clippings of this, is like when this film came out in the first year or two, there were 11 people who died because of Russian roulette. Oh, and I like look, look, people who had seen the Deer Hunter in theaters came home, tried it out. Wait, it's and, like, like that and, stupid like, thing. Remember that, that movie, the, the the football movie where they laid down in the middle of the road and then all of a sudden fucking people are laying down in the middle of the road. It's like, you fucking idiots. What the <laughs> fuck are you yeah. doing? I mean, it was like all the people who tried that were men. What? I don't know what it is about men, but they were all um, like male of the male species. And they were all there between the youngest was eight. Right. The oldest was 32. And then this this conversation all happened. Like, what is happening? How do we stop this? What do we do about this movie? And it happened again, like, really loud a couple of years later when they decided to put The Deer Hunter on TV. <sighs> and when they put it on TV, they were like, maybe we should edit out the Russian roulette scene. Well, then there's no movie, right? And there's no movie. Like, what do you do? You can't really edit out the Russian roulette scene. So they didn't edit out the Russian roulette scenes. And a couple of years later, the death toll had risen to 28 it's people crazy. who were, like, watching the movie and shot themselves watching it. So I'm a kid of the 80s, right? That's when I grew up as a young child. Uh, and everyone spoke about Russian roulette growing up. Like that was a- It was a, like the quicksand of our childhood. Yeah, it really was. And the idea, like I remember having toy guns and doing Russian roulette, like with cap guns and stuff. Like that's only because that's older brothers telling younger brothers. It's, you know, it's it's trickling down. It's a crazy, crazy thing. Like in a way, when your takeaway from this movie is like, you're a man- if you can fucking do this. And they're like, and they become slightly like superheroes. Like there's a thing with Christopher Walken. I know it's all, you know, averages and whatever, but he does it click like it doesn't, you know, he's alive for, he's alive for like six years of doing this? just fucking playing Russian roulette, like making like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars and sending them home to Stevie. What the fuck? And how does he how even know where Stevie is? Yeah. Can we talk about, no, I mean, it's so crazy. I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing. So it's like, we can't even talk about what we saw there because it's so fucking scary and dangerous. But yet we're making it as really cool. And I think that this movie, I do think it glorifies violence. I think it glorifies Russian roulette like in a way that is problematic. 
Well, yeah, and even I the outfits that they're wearing. They're pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, they are cool. I, did, cool. I mean, by the way, I'm not. I'm not yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. It glorifies yeah. it. But yeah, I mean, you. There's that moment where you know the first time that you see Christopher Walken forced to play it when he's upstairs right before they break out. And you see when he pulls the trigger and survives, you see him actually get a little bit happy. You see the sort of like rush of like, oh, I did it. And it almost makes it seem like you did heroin for the first time. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of like an addictiveness to it. And then what happens from there is, well, first about that scene, you know, the man leading it, they shoot him like he's a person with just nothing behind the eyes. You know, all the people they're picking on from the Vietnamese and then later the Chinese, like by the end of of the film, it's the Chinese who are running these parlors for some reason. And the Frenchman, the Belloc, right. who's like, what is fun? <laughs> I have all the money you want in the world. Behind all the closed That's doors of the Russian roulette right clubs. But by the way, I love it. And then by the end, it's the same thing. You have all of these just sort of blank faces. You have death being treated so cavalierly. Actually, even early on, people are like bleeding from the head and someone puts a sandal on the wound. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, that'll stop it. it. It makes you really think about how we lay out violence in order to get the audiences on our side. I mean, even from our very first attack here in this movie, like, the very first thing we see once these dudes land in Vietnam, when we go from this musical shock, by the way, let's play a little bit of that musical shock, just to be like, here we are, it's a musical shock, we're going to Vietnam. So once we've gone from bar nocturne indoors at night to daylight bombs, what we see happen is you see a Vietnamese soldier take a grenade, kill a bunch of women and kids. Then one of the women and kids in this hole survives, climbs out, holding her baby, screaming Mm -hmm. and crying. We see that man shoot her. And then you see Robert De Niro flamethrower the dude. And the movie's kind of setting it up to be like, yeah, the first time you see Robert De Niro kill a person, that person has just murdered a bunch of women and a bunch of children. They make him do the worst thing possible. So that well, when he's violent, we're totally on his side. Like, his violence in this movie is always 100% justified by the actions that we're seeing everybody else do around him. And, I mean, I would argue, too, that the Vietnamese soldiers are portrayed so villainous. Like, to a point, you know, this is not a, a one-sided war. I mean, you know, like, I mean, we can get into the, the nitty-gritty of Vietnam, but it's sort of, like, presented like, like... Like, if you were to watch this movie and have no idea what the Vietnam War was, you'd be like... We had to go in there. These are the most evil motherfuckers you've ever seen. Like there, they, there's not a single uh, Vietnamese soldier we see that isn't almost mustache twirling. You know, it, it really is. Ag- it's aggressive, and I think that's another reaction to the film and why people were against it. it why they called it racist? Yeah, I mean, it, it, like you get that, and I'm not trying to be like I'm not living in cancel culture. I'm not trying to be like you know. I, I think. This movie for the time period is just like it's sending a lot of weird mixed messages. It feels as sloppy as a three hour length leads me to believe. It's like there's a lot of good stuff in there, but no one kind of just carved it away. It's almost like, oh, yeah, that's a good beginning of a statue, but you need to make sure that you carve it all out here because what you're saying is sloppy. Well, and when you have things in here like. To the movie's credit, it does show, like, the terror of the civilians trying to leave the town. It shows them trying to leave Saigon at the end when the war is over in 1975. But then you also cap that off by having, like, a news anchor, like, a real actual news broadcast inserted in here being like, they're all trying to leave. This is the end of the war. This is the end of Americans here. 
And I do think when you put a real news broadcast like that in the middle of a film, it makes all the phony parts seem realer. Yeah. And I think that is an actual problem. That's why I really hate it when, like, American Sniper, to pick on that movie again, is like, we're a true story. Because it isn't. It isn't at all a true story, but it's taken as truth. Other things that happened when this movie came out, like, um, Bert Schneider, the guy who was the producer of Easy Rider and Five Five Easy Pieces, he saw a screening and he called it a sacrilegious piece of shit. Um, one of the guys who helped like produce the movie was punched in the face because of it. Wow. He was punched in the face by a Vietnam expert because he was so upset. And the guy who was punched in the face said, actually, that did make him slowly turn around on the film that he had created. He said that like he would probably have made a different movie today and that he would have been more careful about the Vietnamese people and that we defamed them. And I regret that. Once again, we're looking at something that I think is a problematic thing that we're coming to all the time. We reference it almost always. A lot of these directors that we've talked about are making these movies, these classics, these epics, under really strenuous situations. It's almost like to make a movie about war, I gotta, I gotta like treat you like you're in war, even though I've never been in war. So it's almost like someone play acting what it would be like. You know, we're gonna be on the Titanic, we're gonna actually sink a fucking boat. You know, I want this dance sequence and do the right thing to feel, you know, desperate and angry. I'm gonna make you desperate and angry. You know, here we have Chimino. Literally, you know, having these guys get slapped across the face, you know, relentlessly, like you feel it like in the film, like how many times they're getting slapped across the face. Now imagine on a day when they're shooting this, growing angrier and angrier, like they have them in these cages with rats in the cages. They're doing their own stunts like that. Yeah, whole th- apparently, actually, when Stevie yelled, Michael, there's rats in here, he was yelling for Michael Chimino, not even the wow. character Michael. And they just kept in that that cut. Well, it's like, I think that he kept in a lot of that stuff. Like, apparently the moment where Walken, uh, you know, blows his brains out at the end and De Niro is like shaking him and, you know, which you would never really do to a person who gets a gunshot to the head. You don't want to shake their FYI, head. FYI, if that happens. Yeah, don't shake their head. It's not it's not helping. Um, but it's improvised. I think they were capturing all these moments. Spit on them. Hang them down. Like, and even that, that amazing... Um, 30 foot drop into the river, you know, when they're, when they're being rescued by a helicopter, it's, it's, it's nuts. They, they shot that 15 times in two days. They, they almost like killed the people in the helicopter. You know, it's like, it's this kind of like reckless filmmaking where it's sort of like, we need to be in hell to make something that feels like hell. And I feel like I, I bristle at that. And I can look at someone like a David Fincher who is very exacting. And I think David Fincher is almost like the Pixar of that. He wants a performance the way he wants it. He wants your hand to go up. He wants your head to go left. He wants you to say it in the right tone. And I don't think that that's torture. I think that that's the agreement that you make with him. This, it feels like I need you to be beat to shit to act, you know, and that's the only way I trust you to give a good performance. Well, I know it's not a, it's not a great movie unless your prop master gets malaria, which happens. Oh, jeez, of course. But, I mean, what you're getting at is something I do find really, 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 really interesting and that I love that we've been able to do through this show is I feel like it's just sort of in our gut nature. Maybe it's the way that we are trained. Maybe it's the way people talk to us about film growing up. But you're like, oh, that was a really hard shoot. It must be a great film. And it just, right. it's somehow like this knee-jerk reaction. It's like somebody hit your knee, your funny bone. You're like, oh, everybody was fucking miserable and it was terrible and the guy was a real tyrant. Must be a classic. Right. And I don't, it's just, the two are tied together and well, I want to untie we, them. I think that we think of hard work is synonymous with a job well done, right? Um, and that's not always the case. I mean, again, like, let's just be real. We're actors, right? 
We make pretend. We dress up in costumes. We get makeup on our face. We'd say our lines multiple times. We'd go home to our nice houses. Like, I mean, like, really, like, that's that's what we're doing here. Like, you know, um, and I think there's a lot of actors who aren't doing that. And they're doing, like, weird, uh, you know, theater pieces. And they're and not weird. I'm, I'm just saying, like, you know, very avant-garde things. And that's one thing. But this is a major movie. This is a movie that cost $15 million. It was only supposed to, I think, cost eight, but it went over budget when they, you know, went to Thailand to shoot. And all of a sudden, all the equipment they had had to be used in a coup. And then they, like, they, like, went back, they killed a couple people with the equipment and then gave it back to the production. Like, so many things went on here. But I just, I, I do think there is something very bizarre about this mentality. It's something that we see very much in the, in the 70s, and I think these are the people that are voting on this AFI list. I agree. And that's why this thing is moving up in the list. Like, what contemporary have you talked to where people, like, reference Deer Hunter? I, 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 don't, I don't feel like our contemporaries talk about this movie this way. I mean, what I think is so interesting is kind of exactly what you're saying. Like, I, I honestly believe a tiny bit, just a tiny bit mm-hmm. of a reason why this movie is on the list is because— there was this defensiveness about even getting it on air because it was sort of like pushed down because of the actual suicides that happened in Mm -hmm. here. You know, there had to be like letter writing campaigns. It was like a little bit save the deer hunter. It became an event because it was finally on TV. So it could go and be the ring, you know, for all the kids who actually should just not have access to guns in their dad's house. Um, And I think there's that, that defensiveness of like, I must defend this film that makes people elevate it higher. That makes people think like, I will prove that we were all correct in loving this. We're talking a lot about these Russian roulette scenes, and I feel like I would love to play this clip of Christopher Walken talking about how he prepared for this. Well, there's a particular section of the film that has to do with the first Russian roulette sequences, which is, um, which is, which is tough stuff. And um, uh, when I got there to shoot that, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was worried about it because I knew it was a, a, a very important part of the film, but I, I didn't have any ideas about it, you know? And... Um, we were sitting there, and uh, uh, Michael Cimino uh, decided to have the Viet Cong leader, the man who was playing the Viet Cong leader, uh, start to smack us across the face. And if, if, if you've been smacked across the face a dozen or 50 times, you don't have much trouble acting, that's all I can say. That the things in the film are, are, are very authentic. There was a man standing there smacking me across the face. And um, I didn't have any trouble playing the scene. Did you want to hit back? Of course I did, but I knew... Uh, that that uh, in the long run, a year later, I would be glad for having done that. I mean, one of the things I think was really interesting about Walken's character in particular in this movie is that there's kind of a Sophie's Choice thing happening, right? You know, Michael is in the water with Stevie and with Nick. Nick gets on the helicopter. They're trying to get on the helicopter too, Michael and, and Stevie. But then when Stevie falls, Michael decides, you know what, I'm going to go with Stevie. I'm going to make sure Stevie, who's the weaker one, gets back alive. Atticus Finch it. Alec is finishing it, but what you see is, like, what happens to Walken when he's left alone because he doesn't descend right away. Like, he's actually kind of okay. He can't remember his parents' birthdays, which mm-hmm. is difficult. I, Sorry, Mom, I forget your birthday a little bit. I, mean, um, I could never remember the year, but I could give you the date. Yeah, there's this sort of lovely, a little bit heavy-handed pa- patriotic moment. Are you Nikonar Jabotorevich? Can you understand me, Nikonar? Are you Shevatorevich? Are you sure? Uh-huh. Shevatorevich, is uh, that a Russian name? No. It's American. All right, let me see your name tag. But it's it's the being alone in these moments that I think 
is finally what makes him wander off and makes him sort of get destroyed. Like, he starts wandering off through, like, the party streets at first, right. which kind of look a little fun. Then he goes to the strip club where you're hearing this Gladys Knight song playing that, like, I love this song very much. This is one of my favorite songs. But it also, the lyrics themselves seem chosen because they are about what's happening in this film. They are about what's happening. Just this like sad routine of what happens with the prostitute, the pre-folded towel, the baby in the room. And then he finds himself like the, there's almost this irony to him stumbling across the the Russian roulette club because it's the darkest thing. There's no nothing trying to pull him in there. There's no reason why he should have found that. There's no reason why he wouldn't have stayed with the bright lights. But something dark kind of pulls him there. And then the irony being that Michael is also there, that these right. two people both found this place because something dark in them needed to both be there. And watch it. I mean, it's weird because it's also like if we take apart the coincidence of this movie, it's like and, – and that's why I think this movie is fantasy, right? It is – just saying you have to leave your logic at the door. Like, how do these guys find each other in the middle of the Vietnam War? Why is Michael there in, like, civilian clothes watching this? Why would anyone who was subjected to this in a in a way that he was want to watch this for fun? You know, and then, and, and I think the idea is, going back to this idea that, you ha- like, it's only you're drawn to it. This is what we're, that we're connected via Russian roulette. I think it's bullshit. I just call bullshit on it. It just feels like it... It feels slightly stupid to me. When you watch in the movie, it's like, I, I buy what's happening. But when you think about it, you're like, really? Like, why would he ever want to watch that? After this is a guy who's not going to be able to shoot a deer. By the way, that deer, also not a deer, was an elk. No big deal. All, another <laughs> lie. Another lie. Michael Cimino, admit it was an elk, not a deer. <laughs> So we have basically the coolest guest of all time with us this week. We have Rutiana Alda, who plays the bride Angela in this film. And Rutiana, just as a backstory before we bring her in, she's fascinating. Uh, She was born in 1942 in Riga, Latvia. She spent her first years living in a refugee camp in, in Europe. You know, it was crowded. It was full of rubble, 2 million people. It was fascinating before making it to America, getting to Flagstaff, and then getting her way to New York to become an actress where she studied with Stella Adler, she studied with Lee Strasberg, and she basically worked with everybody, every single big person from like the 60s and 70s, and she was there. Rudiana was there. And now we get to talk to her about the deer hunter and just the 70s. Rudiana, welcome to Unspooled. You have such an interesting backstory. I mean, you were born in Riga, Latvia during World War II, and... From everything I've heard and you know read in your in your memoir, your first years were all about survival. Uh, it was very stark. There's no way of getting around it. I mean, we lived in rubble, bombed out buildings with you could see the uh, the sky, <laughs> and it was very cold in the winter until we you know got a different kind of housing, and then we uh, uh, we were lucky to wind up in the American zone because. Uh, we got a little, one little room the size of a big closet, which we were grateful for, and we had a bed along each wall or a mattress along each wall, and uh, my grandmother's famous feather bed, which went with us everywhere. So how does a girl in a refugee camp of two million people make it to doing theater in New York City? <laughs> well, you know, I saw my very first movie when I was about six or seven in the refugee camp, Actually, the, the sick children's, they sent me off to the sick children's camp. And so I, I saw my first film, which was 
a movie. I didn't know who Gary Cooper was at the time or Paulette Goddard, but they were in this Western. And I'd never seen a movie before, and I thought, oh, my God. God, there's a life out there. There's a, there's a, there, there's a different, this is amazing, you know. So I, that never wavered. So when I came to America later, the refugees at that time it was a different story because you came, you had to be sponsored by someone. Uh, so we were sponsored by the Presbyterian Church in Chicago, or Willamette, Illinois, outside of Chicago. And uh, they had, before you came, you had to have a job because at that time you could not go on any public assistance. If you went on any public assistance for at least five years until you became a citizen, you were, you were deported back. So they found my stepfather a job in Flagstaff, Arizona. It was a little town at the time on Route 66 in the middle of Arizona. And so we were we were thrown into the small community. My my stepfather, my mother worked at nights, and uh, for a while I was talking like Catherine Hepburn because for a while I was seeing a lot of her movies. <laughs> so people thought, oh, I've, I've become affected, but I wasn't affected. It was just that I was, you know, catching the ear. But that was my my love of movies never left me. My I my wanting to be a storyteller. So it was the moment I graduated. And from Flagstaff, uh, I went to, um, at that time, the best teachers, acting teachers, were in New York. So I went to New York on $200 and uh, a suitcase. I signed up to study with uh, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, Sandy Meisner, all the great teachers of that time. I studied with them all. That's what I love about this early part of your career is, like, you saw everything, you met everybody, like, you just bore witness. I mean, you were everywhere. You you were even, like, Mia Farrow's body double stand-in on Rosemary's yeah, Baby, which I can't... Rosemary's Baby. With, what was with that? Roman. What, what was that set like? Well, you know, it was... Roman at that time was very intense. I don't know if it still is, but it was very intense set. Uh, in the movie, it's the scene is cut out, but in the movie when it starts, this girl in the front of the, the Dakota, the famous building, she jumps out of the uh, the top floor and commits suicide. So uh, they were arranging the, you know, the body double and everything, and Roman was very upset that there wasn't enough blood. So he grabs the blood uh, bottle out of the guy's hand. He said, more blood, I want more blood, more blood, more blood, more blood. And he... So he took over, and everybody's like a little, what is he doing, you know? It was really, he really shaped that movie, I've got to say. He made that movie great. However, John Cassavetes totally hated him uh, because he didn't let John, John felt he didn't let him really create the character and give a a reasonable explanation of why he lets me, uh, you know, into this devil group. But I must say, I've got to hand it to Polanski that he he made a he made a terrific film. And you got to play these like roles in creating these gigantic set pieces. I mean, the wedding in the Deer Hunter just seems 
absolutely outrageous. It seems like it, amazing that you guys pulled it off. I mean, could you walk me through the sequence? Like, how long are you practicing? How long are you learning the dances? How long are you staging everything? How many days are you wearing a wedding dress? Well, that wedding dress, by the way, never got dry. That we, that we, we were in the middle of a heat wave. It was like 120 degrees. Oh, my God. You know, shoot. So uh, they tried to try it, but I would get into that wedding gown. It was damp every day. You know, that <laughs> scene... Um, about a week or two into the filming, the big guys came down on him. We almost they the movie almost got shut down. Uh, we got shut down for a day or two, at least a day, maybe two. And we thought we weren't going to make it the movie because, but they uh, they felt Michael was being excessive in the wedding scene and excessive in this. And in fact, later on, they tried to release the movie without the wedding scene. It what? didn't work. How would you yeah, make yeah, this yeah, movie yeah. without they the wedding scene? They cut it down to nothing. Of course, when you cut the wedding scene down to nothing, all the characters get established in the wedding scene. Well, the the dances. We went to give you an example. We went to do. We had. We went to learn these three Russian dances with this dance teacher that has a company in Cleveland. They do these Russian dances. And she said to us, these take months to learn. We're not going to, you, well, you can't. Well, we said, let's let Michael send us here for four hours, five hours to learn these dances. So she said, okay, well, we'll get, cause she was getting paid. So she, she said, all right. At night in the hotel, we would pair up in the, in the hallways of the hotel and we would do these dances over and over again. Chris was the easiest to learn because Chris was a dancer, Chris Walken. He was a dancer, so he got things really quickly. Um, and But the rest of us, we really, we really were almost all night doing these dances. And so we... The teacher, the 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 school te- the teacher that taught these dances was was amazed that we could we got these dances right, and I said to Michael afterwards, I said, here's what she said. She said we couldn't do it; it would take us months, and yet we did it. And he, I said to him, how did you know we would get it done? He said, oh, I had total faith in you. I just knew you would do it, and so there was a trust there from from Michael. He the, he trusted us. He he, he just. Let and he was into letting moments happen. You know, he wanted these moments to happen. Uh, one of the only time I ever saw him lose it was it was because we were waiting. We were working these long hours, eighteen hours. Uh, you know, so we were all we were all tired. But when when John Savage and I drink from the cup, uh, you know, the wine. Yeah. They had they had weeks to work on that scene. These special effects people to make sure that 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 whatever they did, the the drop would drop. Well, we went to shoot it, and it didn't work. And we were shooting in the 17th hour or something. The drop wasn't dropping? Was that you, I, your chest, your your dress? Were they zooming yeah, that in? Yeah, that was the wedding dress. Yeah. yeah. There was the last scene we shot at the wedding. And so the drop wouldn't drop, and Michael lost it. He said... If this was Francis Ford Coppola, he said, you had weeks to get this right. You had weeks to do it. If this was Francis Ford Coppola set, you would be done perfectly. And you guys have really screwed this up. And, and he went on and on. And I, and I stood there because he had to vent. It was, it, and it, it was the last, we were in the last hour. It was the last scene. And it didn't work. Michael, Michael calmed down. I said, Michael this is important to the scene. He said, yes, it's so important. This sets the whole thing. And I said, hey, I said, let's, let's, maybe we can get a dropper. And Michael, you can drop the, you can drop the drop on the dress. 
And he said, that's not the way I wanted to do it. That's not the way we wanted to shoot it. And I said, I know, but we don't have time to make it work. It's not going to work. He said, I know, I know. So I said, he said, okay. So Michael actually stood above me on a ladder and dropped that drop. At the, at the exact time that he wanted it. To I'm so just it, picturing Carrie for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> so he dropped the drop and it worked perfectly. And that was like our 19th hour. But so he had a comp- He didn't want to compromise. If he had a vision, you see, he wanted to do his vision. He wanted to be true to his vision. I can't imagine how hard it must have been for all of you when John passed away. Well, it was a shock because the, the rumor is, which is not true, because I had, I had intimate talks with John. Johnny and I, he, he really thought he beat the cancer. He didn't. He said, you know, I'm so happy I beat it. Everything's fine. I'm fine. And I, my, his, his, goal, his goal was to stop everybody from smoking. That was his. He was, see, saw anybody with a cigarette. He said, you've got to stop. Look what happened to me. You, and I beat it, but I'm fine. So it wasn't the story is that poor John Kezel went through this thing with his cancer. And isn't this awful? We felt so sorry for him. No, Johnny was great. Johnny was healthy during that time. And and he still, well, the cancer returned with a venom, I think, right after I saw him, probably sometime in January. And he passed very quickly in a matter of a couple of months. I mean, it, was, it just returned really fast. But when we worked on Deer Hunter, it wasn't like, oh, poor Johnny Cazale. He's like, no, he had more energy than a lot of people. He was like, and he was having fun. He was having the time of his life. So, uh, in fact, he was teasing me. He said, he said, that baby was mine. That was my baby because, you know, the whole thing about we don't know. Which, he said, it was you and me, kid. It was you and me. We had to. And, you know, he was just a wonderful person. I mean, I can't. Just a regular guy, really, honestly. <laughs> also, on the baby note, I mean, there's so much in your scenes that we're supposed to pick up from just sort of inference from watching. You know, this is a film that really, like, trusts the viewer to kind of understand what's what's going on inside all these people. But to you, as you were playing Angela, the way you approached it, how do you think she felt about this shotgun wedding? Well, I I, I played it like this is I I that I, I still I love Johnny Savage too. And uh they're going off to war and I better, you know, I better have a father here. So and he's the only he's the one he's the only one that asked me. I, I thought of it as a sweet romance, like when you have a little high school romance and it's innocent and it's sweet and somebody has a crush on you. And I, I played it like my character, that Johnny's character, John Savage's character had crush on me. We were like really kind of like little sweethearts, but we never had, you know, like John says uh, to Bobby, we, I never had sex with her. So, but in spite of that, that, that he... There was a love that these two people had for each other, and she had to get married because um, where was she going to go? She had no parents. She, she, uh, you know, <clears throat> she had nothing in this small little town. So at least she would have something. And I, I think in a way, what John Savage's character probably thought that too. At least he would provide for her, and living at the mother's house and provide for her in terms of his whatever his little salary was from the. From the, from the army. So, I mean, I, I, I sort of thought of it that way. Can I admit something maybe a little silly to you, which is that Christopher Walken in this film is basically the most attractive man I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, oh boy, was he? He was the height of his, he was the height of his uh, beauty. Oh my <laughs> I God. Mean, gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's interesting because 
the PR person thought it was going to be John Savage that was going to get the nomination for the Best Supporting Actor. But a lot of his stuff was cut out. A lot of his stuff, especially in the Vietnam sequences, was cut out because of uh, whatever reason, you know, Michael, uh, whatever, saw, who knows. But, yeah, Christopher was at his most gorgeousness, absolutely. Just look at him and you think, oh, my God, <laughs> that is gorgeous. <laughs> you know, one of the first episodes we did on this show is we did Platoon, which, you know, in everything I was reading it from the articles at the time, people were like, this is the film where Vietnam veterans were really able to talk about their war experience. But, I mean, Deer Hunter comes out years before. Like, didn't Deer Hunter add something to the conversation? Oh, no, it absolutely did. I remember they sent us out to different cities to uh, premiere premiere the movie. I was sent back to Cleveland to premiere the movie uh, as a guest. And uh, I have never had the response that I had, because a lot of veterans came. I've never had the response I've ever had from another movie like I had this one. People, lined, veterans lined up. They were in tears. They were like, they were thanking me for making the movie. Of course, it was Michael, but they were, they were saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. This really, I, one woman came up to me, I'll, I'll never forget. She said, just, you know, I was there for several hours. So uh, she said, thank you so much. And I said, well, you know, I'm just part of the cast. No, she said, thank you because my husband has never talked to me about his Vietnam experiences until tonight. And tonight he started talking to me and he was crying and sobbing on my chest. And she said, this is a breakthrough for me and my family and my relationship with him. Wow. It was such a powerful evening. I've never, ever, ever had that experience. Oh, Regina, before we go, I just want to say like, what really knocks me out about your career is just that you have done so much. You know, you've done over a hundred roles on camera. You've done so much theater. When I've read interviews with you saying about like, why, like what's driven you? The thing you say is that it's because when it came to acting, you never felt like you had a second choice, a second option, anything you'd rather do. To which I just want to say like, really? Yeah, really. You know, I always, there was never any, I mean, I did a lot of job jobs. Believe me, I drove a cab. I was one of the first cab drivers, women cab drivers (laughs) at night. I, you know, worked in restaurants. I did conventions. I did stuff, you know, because you needed, I needed to make money to to pay my rent. So I did a lot of this, but I always, I, at one point when I was doing some miserable job, which I think I got fired from, I said, oh my God, is there anything I want to do? It's, I'm having such trouble making a living. And they were, I, I searched, I searched this, and I said, there's nothing I want to do. So even when I was driving a cab, I remember one night over the Manhattan Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge, I, I said to myself, this is not forever. This is not forever. I'm not driving this cab forever. Something will happen. And then something did happen. Well, Regina, I can't, I, I don't even have words for how fun it has been to talk to you. I, it, this has just been so, so great. Oh, it's so wonderful, Amy. Well, Ritanya Alda is a person who's been around for a while. (laughs) (laughs) There I am. I enjoyed sharing, sharing some moments of my life with you. So thank you. Uh, that was so, 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 so much fun talking to her. I want to ask her like a bazillion questions and hear literally every story. But luckily for us, 
Rodana is writing a one-woman show about her life. She's working it now. She's submitting it to Sundance. I'm going to cross all my fingers that we get to see her perform the play about her awesome life. And also, if you don't want to wait for that, The Mommy Dearest Diary, Carol Ann Tells All, her memoir of her time on the set of Mommy Dearest, is out now. Thank you again so much, Rodiana. This was awesome. All right, so Amy, we know that this movie is a hit, right? It makes $49 million. You know, it's a success. It's the biggest success that Chimino has. And we've talked a little bit about the Oscars. Tell me about what's going on on Oscar night and, and how this everything is getting received. Well, there's two things I think are particularly interesting. Like one, the person who presents the best director award to Michael Cimino is actually Francis Ford Coppola, who's mm. going, he was like in process of apocalypse. Now he's, he gives the award to a guy who's already making like a dirty apocalypse, a, a dirty apocalyptic Vietnam film. And I wonder how he felt like, man, is there going to be room for my film? Right. Or was he like, Thank you for making room for my film. Or maybe really he says, I'm going to make my film more, you know, fantastical to stay away from this. I mean, I think Apocalypse Now is a very conscious choice to do a Vietnam film in a very different way. It's true. I wonder that. And also, another presenter that night was John Wayne. And this is important for a couple of reasons. Like, one, we know that John Wayne hated these kind of war movies. Because if John made what made a war picture, it was going to be more like Green Beret. It was going to be like more... Here's what America did right completely. Mm -hmm. It's going to be heroic. And so John Wayne presenting the award to this, there's a little bit of like darkness there. And it's an interesting moment because this is actually, I think, even John Wayne's very last performance in public. The very last time he spoke in public because he was really sick. He dies two months later. Everybody knows he's really sick. When he walks out, they even build it up a little bit. Um, There's they show this clip of Bob Hope from the Oscars the year before saying he wishes that John Wayne would be there, but John Wayne was sick. And then when John Wayne finally does come out, when he walks in, he gets the standing ovation before he gives out Best Picture. I, I, you know, I think like the more we do the show, the more fascinated I am in the Oscars of the 70s, because you really do have this passing of the old guard and ascension of the new guard and these mashups of like veteran performers next to like Ali McGraw. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Like I would love to just hang out at that Oscars that whole decade and just observe everybody. You're in this crossroads. It reminds me of like when you're in Istanbul and you're at the airport, it's like literally the most crossroads of the world I've ever been at. And the seventies feel like that. The seventies Oscars feel like that. But do you feel like it's more aggressive because they're seeing like the death of their era and like, it's almost like get, it's a gentrification. It's like, get out of here, old people. We're taking over now. You know, it's like there, there is like a little bit of, your yeah. time is over. I mean, that is how I felt without a stair tap dance. Right. Yeah. I wanted to take a moment here to do a segment on the show that uh, I like to call Dustin Hoffman Corner. Uh, every now oh, and then wow. we like okay. to take a, take a moment to knock DH down a peg. And this week I thought you would like it, uh, especially because did you know <laughs> the reason why Meryl Streep was in Kramer versus Kramer? was because she was freshly grieving the death of her love, John Cazal, who's in this film. And he felt like she was going to be able to bring a vulnerable woman in crisis tone to the character. So he basically hired her to manipulate her emotions at that moment. 
which got her nominated for an Oscar. And she was in the same year nominated for Best Lead Actress. She lost to Maggie Smith and won Best Supporting Actress for Kramer versus Kramer. I mean, that's just Hoffman, again, never trusting that other people can act. He, right. That's also the movie where he slapped her in the face because he wasn't sure that she would like show the proper motion and she got really mad. What if Dustin Hoffman played the part of John Cazale in this movie? That would have been interesting. Or or uh, or Michael, I would have liked to have seen two really alpha guys go at it. What kind of movie would that have made? So I know, Amy, you said that this film had mixed reviews. We read a couple of them. Is there anything else that you want to kind of pull from? Well, you know, nobody writes a pan like Pauline Kael. Hmm. <clears throat> and to back up a little bit, I think a lot of why this film got the positive reviews that it did, part of it, is because... Star Wars had just come out, made a bazillion dollars, and mm-hmm. I think critics were in a moment kind of like they are now, where we're like, we must defend art against blockbusters. Okay. And so I do think there was a little bit of this undercurrent of like, we must say that three hours long, three hour long epics are art and not Star Wars. Right. Try to like draw this divide. So I think that is a lot of the backdrop here of what's happening. But Pauline Kale and Andrew Serres, two people who are always at each other's throats, both hated this. Um, Andrew Serres called it, quote, massively vague, tediously elliptical, and mysteriously hysterical. And he had this line, once more, the outline for a great film has been mistaken for the actual achievement of the film itself. And um, and, be- and because when this film came out, actually, nobody was completely sure yet that Russian roulette wasn't real. It was a mm-hmm. little bit of like Blair Witch-esque. Right. You know, people weren't totally sure what was right. Like, it took a couple of years for the research to really come out. So he got, he was confused about that. But Kale, I got to read a Kale pan. You ready? Yes. This movie, with its monumental romanticism and its striving for a symphonic shape, is sexually impacted. It has the celibacy of football players before the big game, and it attaches it to Vietnam. The hero and his friends are as chaste as Norman Rockwell Boy Scouts. They're the American cousin of hobbits. Which, wow. Um, she says wow. that we're made to feel that, all, that what we see is all these, these men are, and that a great director would plant doubts in us. You know, she she thinks Chimino sees like the small town people as too small town. Yeah. And she says that when Chimino wants to make a point, it's usually an outsized point, a portent or an omen that reeks of old movie infantilism. She kind of likes the scene where he plays the Chopin Nocturne at the bar right before they all go to Vietnam. But she has this observation I think is really smart. She says, if only one of the men had fallen asleep, this scene might have been as great as it wants to be. But with all of them demonstrating their innate sensitivity, showing us that beer sloshers, savage beasts are soothed by music, it's too much like those scenes in which roomful of, of Hitler's lieutenants all swooned to Wagner. Yes, I, I love yes. that line because it's a little bit like also our our whole opera thing that's yes. been going on since Shawshank. Um, and then she says that the town is too un- uncontroversial about its politics, and that when it comes to Robert De Niro and Streep, he seems so wishy-washy about her feelings for her that quote he was hotter for the deer. Hmm. And then she ends by getting a lot into the politics of the film and and the racism. And she says, the film seems to be saying that the Americans had no choice, but the Viet Cong enjoyed it. And Michael, the transcendent hero, is a hollow figure. There is never a moment when we feel, oh, my God, I know that man. I am that man. Yes, yes, yes. That review hits it right on the head for me. It's it. I, I think the easy way out is to be like, well, we're not trying to talk about Vietnam. We're not trying to talk about violence. We're just telling the story. But I don't think the story is good. And I don't think that the message is good. And I think that that's what, you know, but I think there are great scenes. There are great performances. You know what is fascinating, though, about reviews of this movie when it came out? What? Is that most of the ones I read said it was a homoerotic film, which had never occurred to me until I read these reviews. Do you think that people are kind of piggybacking on Deliverance at this point? And I think that somebody referred to the Schleisinger of Ness. 
ness of it. Thinking about Midnight Cowboy, maybe because you have a tall blonde Christopher oh. Walken and a shorter dark-haired guy. I don't know what it is, but everybody thought that Robert De Niro's character in was gay. Well, they say he's gay, but I think he's just in love with Meryl Streep. I mean, that's what we're trying. That's what we're led to believe that he's like watching her from across the bar. Like he is in love with her, but it's his best friend's girl. He couldn't. Get well, with her. You know, when I like I when I rewatched the movie after I read these, I'm like, okay, I can kind of see that there's bits where like, is he looking at Meryl or is he looking at Christopher Walken? You're not entirely mm. sure. And there is that bit where John Cazale says that like he's been trying to hook him up with women and he won't right. be with women. But I think that that's him acting out because he just got humiliated by De Niro. Like, and I feel like that is kind of reactionary, you know, gay panic. Like, here's a movie about a bunch of dudes who have feelings. You know, why are they hanging out with each other all the time? Why aren't they just fucking girls? And that guy didn't fuck, you know, I'm sorry using fuck so many times. Uh, that guy didn't have sex with his wife and she's pregnant. Like, there's a lot of these things. Like, why are they all together? I, I think that that just feels like at that point, we may not have been used to those kind of relationships. And maybe that's the, sh- the beginning of that kind of relationship. I can hear that argument. I can absolutely hear that argument. Although I was thinking, like, there is also the argument that we didn't really have openly gay characters in the 70s. And so maybe people were used to looking for subtext, where now we're sort of more comfortable with the idea that, well, wouldn't you just say so? Mm. So I, I don't know. It's interesting. It's, it's interesting, at least, to see that those are the glasses people had on when they, when they watched it. Yeah, I totally agree. But before we get to The Simpsons... I want to ask you, do you think this film belongs on the list of 100 best films ever made? Nah. I, I, I honestly agree with you. Nah. Nah, <laughs> nah, nah. And, and, and I say it, like, I say it in the way that, you know how I reacted to Ben-Hur. I was like, nah, I could make a case for Ben-Hur on the list more than I could make a case for this. In the grand scheme of um, what it represented and, and, and the, the way the story was told, I really reacted negatively to it. I'm glad that I saw it. I'm glad that I've seen some of these performances. I'm glad that now I know what this movie is. On that note, is there Simpsons? Why, yes, there is. Uh, This is from an episode called Simpson Tide, in which Homer decides to join the Navy. He goes to Moe's bar to tell Moe that he's joining the Navy, and everybody decides to pull together. And then you learn something very sinister about Moe's bar. Well, guys, I won't be seeing you for a while. Where are you going? I've joined the Naval Reserve. Well, I'm not going to let anything happen to my best friend. I'm joining too. Well, I'm not going to let anything happen to my two best customers. I'm joining too. And although my religion strictly forbids military service, what the hey, I'm in too. Gee, thanks, guys. This is just like the deer hunter. The deer hunter? Ah, uh, uh, that reminds me. I'm sorry, guys. We're shutting down for a while. Sorry. So what you didn't see there was that Krusty the Clown is playing a game of Russian roulette in the back room of Moe's. <laughs> That's pretty great. Um, so, Amy, I know we really dug into it. This is a fascinating conversation with you. And now I ask you, what is next on the list? <laughs> I almost feel a little bit bad about it, but 303 and 303, we are going to do Gone with the Wind. Oh, so long, so <laughs> long. Why are you doing this to me in the middle of summer? I have friends, I have barbecues. Ah, uh, well, you know what, Paul? You can roast your weenies on the burning of Atlanta. Okay, all right. Well... Amy, what do we want to tell people to do? The call to action for next week. What do we want to make it? And obviously, you know, there's some pretty famous lines that go out the wind. Yeah, I kind of want to hear people just say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a 
blank. Fill Ooh, in the blank. That's much better than what I wanted to do, which was just have people say, Frank and my dear, I don't give a damn, but in the Borat voice. Um, <laughs> why don't you give us a call at 747-666-5824 and give us your, frankly, my dear, I don't give a... And you fill in the blank. That's 747-666-5824. Leave it there. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a blank. It's just like Match Game, but with me and Amy and no Alec Baldwin. All right. uh, (laughs) We will see you next week for Gone with the Wind, where all movies are available. I mean, you'll have no trouble finding Gone with the Wind anywhere. Um, All right. See you next week, Amy. 